of Commentary Hour. Today we continue with our Conversations with Remarkable Minds series. The theme is, what happened to the left, the liberal community, and where is it taking us now? To join us in this discussion for this program, we have Craig Murray. Craig is a former British diplomat who was the ambassador to Uzbekistan and has been holding posts throughout his career in Nigeria, Poland, and Ghana. His assignments in Poland included work towards the nation's post-communist transition and entry into the European Union. He's better known for his human rights activism and being a leading advocate for the release of Julian Assange. He has spoken out vocally over the United Kingdom's involvement in aiding the United States and conjuring false evidence leading to the Iraq invasion. After leaving the Liberal Democratic Party, Craig has been more active in the Scottish independence movement, and for several years, he also served as the rector of the University of Dundee. Uh, He has also been arrested in violation of his freedom of speech for blogging about a Scottish scandal involving Scotland's former first minister which led to his serving time in prison. This month, Craig took his complaint to the United Nations. In 2006, he received the Sam Adams Award for Integrity and Intelligence for his campaigning against torture. And he has rejected three honors from the late Queen Elizabeth. He is also the author of several important books, including Murder in Samarkaland, about his experience in Central Asia, and uh, he's also written on fictional historical spy book revolving around the rivalry between the British and Russian empires maneuvering in Central Asia during the 19th century. He's also the author of over 130 peer-reviewed articles for professional and academic publications. His website and articles are craigmurray.org.uk. Nice to have you with us today. Very good of you to invite me. We share some mutual acquaintances and perhaps friends like Ray McGovern, Chris Hedges, and the folks at Consortium News who have frequently been on this program for about a dozen years. But many listeners may not be familiar with your personal story from being a major figure in the British diplomatic services to become, as of today, in the eyes of some of those in official positions, a pariah. And in the United States, people become ambassadors by simply bundling money. And they could have no experience whatsoever in foreign affairs. They may not even know anything whatsoever about a country that they're being assigned to. And however, there are those in the State Department who have had long careers understanding the diplomacy and the politics, the culture, and the people involved in a given country. Why they're not chosen to be the ambassadors is all a question that I have yet to have an honest answer. But in in Great Britain and other countries in Europe, there's more often a tendency to get someone who has come from the diplomatic service. So could you begin, for those who may not be familiar with you, to tell us about your background in the uh, Foreign Service, what led you to receiving the ambassadorship to Uzbekistan, and then take it from there so we can see your evolution of thought and what brought you to that crisis where you were suddenly being confronted for telling the truth and informing about what was going on. The form is yours. Take your time, please. Thank you very much. Yes, you're, you're right. The British Diplomatic Service doesn't have political appointees as ambassadors. Um, just very occasionally it happens, but it's very, very unusual. 99% of our ambassadors are diplomats who work their way up the tree. You join the um, Foreign Service at a junior level, and you get, uh, if if you're good at it, 
you get uh, successive promotions. Um, and I was, uh, I think I can say I was you know, very successful in my diplomatic career. And I did a number of truly fascinating things. I negotiated a, a peace treaty in Sierra Leone between the the rebel forces and the government of Sierra Leone and the government of Charles Taylor. That included negotiating face-to-face -face with Charles Taylor, who's now, of course, a convicted war criminal in, in The Hague, mm -hmm. negotiating face-to-face -face with him in his palace in Monrovia uh, and having people shoot at me on the way <laughs> on the way back to the airport. So I had some interesting times. I also uh, successfully negotiated the United Kingdom's maritime boundaries, most of them. Uh, with Ireland, with uh, Denmark, with France, uh, with Germany, and, and those were, you know, those were very interesting negotiations because you move those maritime boundaries a little bit one way or the other, and that's twenty billion dollars in in oil and gas. So, uh, you know, I did some heavyweight jobs. I, I could go on. I mean, I had many jobs in the in the diplomatic service, uh, and eventually I. Because I, I was being successful, I, I was the UK's youngest ambassador at the time I was appointed. Normally you get an ambassadorship at the end of your career, if you're lucky. And uh, it's very unusual to be appointed an ambassador in our service below the age of 50, 55. Um, and I was appointed ambassador at 42. Um, and we also, as, as you say, you have to be you have to become an expert in the country. Uh, I had two years full-time learning Russian before going to Uzbekistan because it's a, a country where everyone speaks Russian. Um, so, yeah, you, you do achieve a certain level of expertise. When I got to that country, um, it was being treated as a close ally of ours and a close ally of the United States. It borders Afghanistan. I arrived in 2002, you know, quite shortly after we had invaded Afghanistan, and both the UK and US had large armed forces in Afghanistan. And the U United States had a very large military base in Uzbekistan, where I was, in order to service their mission in Afghanistan. The Germans also had a large air base in Uzbekistan. Um, so I was told very much that my brief was to support the government of Uzbekistan because it was supporting us in the war on terror. But it was a, you know, a dreadful dictatorship, really. Uh, if you think North Korea, it was that kind of level of totalitarian dictatorship. No freedom of speech at all. Uh, no freedom of assembly. Uh, no, no, no pretense at fair elections. It, it, and... It, tortured, it practiced torture and terror on a widespread scale to keep it, the people under. Um, I think uh, Freedom House and Amnesty International and the other NGOs estimated about 10,000 people a year were tortured. And I think that's probably about true. I, you know, I met, came across numerous torture victims. And we're talking very serious torture. We're, we're talking... Um, mutilation of the genitals, we're talking of strangling, multiple rape, um, and the use of boiling liquid. And I um, came across one case of a man who'd been uh, tortured to death, actually either inside or in a building adjoining the United States air base at Kashi Karnabad. And um, his mother had been given the body to bury and had got detailed photographs of the body. And um, she got them to me, and I sent them on to the pathology department of the University of Glasgow. Uh, and they came back to me and said that he'd been boiled alive, he'd been boiled to death. Um, before that happened, he'd had his fingernails pulled out, he'd been beaten severely about the face and neck, and then he'd been immersed in boiling liquid. And it was total immersion, not splashing because there was a clear tide line uh, uh, along his uh, upper torso and upper arms. Um, and, you know, that, you, you come face to face with that and then you're, 
you're supposed to make public speeches praising your ally, this, this terrible regime. And then it got even worse than that because I discovered that we, and in particular the CIA, were getting regularly getting uh, intelligence, so-called, from the Uzbek intelligence services as a result of these torture sessions. And the CIA and MI6 shared all their intelligence, so I was also getting the intelligence from the torture um, sessions. And I... Um, I protested to my government internally, you know, in cables, uh, top secret encrypted cables. I was protesting uh, back to ministers in the UK that we were getting intelligence from torture, that this is illegal under the UN Convention Against Torture. And um, not only was it illegal and immoral, but it was stupid because the you don't get reliable intelligence under torture. Somebody being tortured will tell you anything you want them to tell you to get the pain to stop. And what the Uzbek security services wanted to hear wasn't necessarily the truth. <laughs> what they wanted to hear was they wanted all of the opponents, all the dissidents from the regime to confess to being in Al-Qaeda. And building this Al-Qaeda network for false intelligence. And there was no Al-Qaeda network in Uzbekistan. It didn't exist at all. It was an invention of the CIA and the Uzbek security services from this false intelligence obtained by torture. And I could prove it didn't exist. You know, I could prove the stuff they were putting out was just wrong. And um, one piece of evidence for that is, for example, one of the intelligence reports I saw um, listed a name of uh, the names of Al Qaeda agents in Tashkent, and I knew one of them personally. He was a professor at the university. I'd had dinner in his home, and he was a Jehovah's Witness. You know, <laughs> there aren't Jehovah's Witnesses in Al Qaeda, uh, you know, so this was crazy stuff the CIA was putting out. Anyway, um, I tried to stop it. Um, I, I was told basically to shut up and get back in my box and that, you know, from the very top, from Tony Blair, the Prime Minister, and Jack Straw, the Foreign Secretary, it had been decided in the war on terror that we, we were to use intelligence from torture. And uh, then I also discovered that the CIA was actually flying people to Uzbekistan in order for them to be tortured people who weren't local people, and people were just being flown in under the Extraordinary Rendition Program to use the Uzbek torture chambers. Um, and, you know, at this stage, uh, what do you do? Um, it's a, obviously it was a great turning point in my life, but I, I couldn't continue with my career in these circumstances and be, be complicit in, in the most appalling of crimes. I, I, I think anyone, uh, you know, of decency, would do whatever they could to um, uh, to try and stop it. So I went public. We're talking about this. What were the consequences of you going public? Because I'm sure you're more than anyone else aware that when you're an ambassador, you never hear of these ambassadors telling the truth about the actual conditions in a country, on the population, or the impact of our policies our hegemonic policies on any country in the world. Yeah, no, it was certainly um, a shock to the system. Uh, I mean, I lost my career. I was uh, dismissed from the service. They couldn't, they, they tried to accuse me of all kinds of things, you know, to destroy my reputation, as they always do, frankly, with, with whistleblowers. They accused me of giving out visas in exchange for sex, they accused me of uh, essentially stealing money from the embassy accounts. Uh, they accused me of being a habitual alcoholic. Um, all of these were quite amusing. The, the, the most amusing one was that they accused me of driving a Land Rover down a flight of stairs. That was a formal <laughs> charge against me. And I've, uh, I've never driven a vehicle in my life. I can't drive. I have terrible eyesight. <laughs> and I've never, never, ever sat behind the wheel of a vehicle. And so... Um, and uh, and on the others, they you know they they couldn't produce one single witness 
to make any accusation that I'd had sex with them in, in some illicit way. They, they made it a charge, but they, when it came to, all this went to a formal hearing. When it came to the hearing, they, they didn't put forward any evidence at all. They, they didn't withdraw the charge, but they said they had no evidence and the uh, head were, and, the, and the charge was dismissed. Um, so it was, you know, obviously it was an extremely difficult time for me. And, they, um, and of course the main thing they did the purpose of the charges wasn't to prove them because they, they knew they were not true. They, they knew they were just inventing this stuff. But the entire purpose of the charges was to leak them to the tabloid newspapers and destroy my reputation. And that's what they did. They, uh, they gave all the charges to the uh, tabloid newspapers. I'd like to go a little further into depth on one thing that recently occurred just last week. And again, this almost never happens where the head of uh, British intelligence, similar to the head of our CIA, uh, confessed that what was done about him knowing, having met in Washington, D.C., prior to the invasion of Iraq, meeting with all of our top specialists, head of the National Security Agency and uh, State Department, etc., that he went back, he took copious notes, and he then informed all of the his colleagues, including the foreign secretary, the prime minister, um, as would be the head of RCIA, giving an intelligence report to the president of the United States and the heads of the other departments. He said that none of this was true. Saddam Hussein was not associated with 9-11, was not... Uh, funding and fostering al-Qaeda, um, and he did not have weapons of mass destruction. In fact, he cited 800 visits uh, by uh, the two different teams that went over. One was Scott Ritter, and another one was a gentleman who had a larger team. And then we have testimony from that team that, uh, that they went to every single site, they went into office buildings, into hotels, they went into factories, they went into storage bins. They could find not a single weapons of mass destruction, and uh, they had been destroyed much earlier after the earlier invasion um, uh, in 1991. In any case, all of this that showed that Saddam Hussein was not a threat was completely discarded, and this information was given to Tony Blair. Now, so Tony Blair knew that there was no reason, legitimate reason, for the United Kingdom to go into Iraq with George Bush. And uh, and but they had on the one side, they had a a stellar cast of characters, all neocons. You know, they had Colin Powell. uh, They had uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney and Bush and uh, and all these other people. And so, and I believe Condoleezza Rice was in there. In any case, they all said we have absolute irrefutable proof. And then the final uh, straw was at the United Nations. Sitting right behind uh, him was uh, the head of the CIA. And all of these people knew that they were lying, that this was not a threat. We should not have invaded. And no one thought of the consequences of what it would do to the different tribes and shift to power. But my concern is that a person who turned out to be just a horrible person, but today has a nonprofit foundation with over 800 employees and lots of money and is an influence around the world, is Tony Blair. Tell us what you know at that time or others in the diplomatic corps or in places of of, uh, positions to know, knew, and yet nobody challenged him. I think, um, well, I know that we we knew for certain there were no Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. Um, By pure coincidence, a few years earlier, so it, it wasn't immediately before, but a few years earlier, I had been the head of the Foreign Office section of a, a joint civilian military unit um, that policed the embargo against 
Iraq. Um, so we knew exactly what had happened to, you know, I was seeing all the intelligence on uh, Iraqi uh, weapon systems, ones which had been destroyed, ones which were part complete, all that kind of thing. I, I was seeing all of the intelligence. We were seeing the shipping documentation on pretty well every single thing that went into Iraq at all. And we were taking action internationally to intercept anything that looked like an attempt at, at weapons procurement and, you know, literally have containers taken off docks and that kind of thing. And I did that um, I did that full time uh, for a while. Um, and as I say, that wasn't immediately before the invasion. That was a few years before. But I knew the system and knew what we were doing. And I knew all the people involved in it. When there, there was a... Uh, to convince Parliament to vote for the war in Iraq, there was a dossier on Iraqi weapons of mass destruction which was produced and which was also given to the United Nations, uh, which uh, was, if you like, an intelligence report, but to the public, setting out um, a detailed lies about weapons of mass destruction and weapons facilities in, in Iraq. And... I knew from my time, you know, having been monitoring it, I, I, I looked through it and I just knew for certain 90% of it I had direct personal knowledge was simply lies. The other 10% I didn't know. And I, um, uh, I, by chance, I was actually walking down the corridor in our foreign office uh, and I came across um, a bloke called Bill Patey, now Sir William Patey, uh, who... I knew because we went to the same university. And um, at that time, he was the head of the Middle Eastern Department of the Foreign Office, um, which I think is called Near Eastern North African Department, officially. He was the head of that. And as such, he was one of the people who had signed off. He was one of the people who had signed off on all these lies. Um, and I stopped him in the corridor and I said, hey, Bill, I said... Um, what is this in the dossier? I said, it's not, it's not true, is it? Has something happened I don't know about? What, what? And, and he just laughed. He looked at me and said, no, of course not. It's all bollocks, was his, <laughs> was his response. And then he carried on cheerfully on his way. He later became the British ambassador to Iraq and the British ambassador to Afghanistan. But he, you know, he, he quite cheerfully admitted to me as a colleague that, no, he, of course it was all rubbish. I think part of the problem is certainly where I was in the British Foreign Office, officials like Bill, who's actually a very, very nice person and, and not, a, not an evil man in the least, they took the view, we, we don't have, just as we don't have political ambassadors, we don't have many political appointees in the, in the system. You, you know, we, there are only maybe three advisory positions in our equivalent of your State Department in our Foreign Office, only three or four advisory positions where um, a new government's elected, a minister's appointed a couple of with a couple of junior ministers, and then they bring three or four advisors with them. We don't put political appointees into major places in the civil service, uh, un un unlike here, where you can have a cleared out and people can go, you know, senior civil service positions are our political appointees here. We, we don't have that. And I think for that, partly for that reason, there's this very strong ethos of I was only obeying orders. I'm just a civil servant. I'm not political. I'm not elected. Democracy elected Tony Blair. He's the democratically elected leader and he's appointed Jack Straw as foreign secretary. And they decide the moral responsibility lies with them. I'm just doing my job. If they want me to sign off on a load of lies, I'll do that because the elected people are telling me to do it. Um, now, of course, there's a moral flaw there because the fact someone elected is telling you to to sign off on lies doesn't mean you should sign off on lies. But but that's that's how people convince themselves. They think I'm I'm obeying democracy. These people were elected. I'm doing what they tell me to do. And of course, um, we all know where the I was only obeying orders um, uh, justification can ultimately lead, uh, and that's. That's for difficulty. But one of the things that I've had difficulty with coming to terms with, you, you know, it's quite a hard thing to adjust to, is that I, I, 
I was in the Foreign Service for 22 years, six years of ATIM as senior management structure, as it's called. Um, all these people were my friends and colleagues. You know, I, I knew them. I was, I believe, I was reasonably popular member of that club, let's call it, you know, of that, of that rather elite group of people. Um, and on the torture incident, you, you know, when I was blowing a whistle on torture, and, and, and earlier when I was trying to stop it internally, um, lots and lots and lots of my colleagues were in touch with me, cheering me on, saying, that's it, Craig, you stop it, you do what you can, you know, please, yeah, let's stop this. Nobody else was prepared to actually do anything <laughs> other than quietly cheer me on. Um, and that that was, for, and, you know, people who, as I say, are, are good people. They're, they're not bad people. They're, they're lovely people with families. And, and they, they were involved in drawing up all these lies that they knew to be lies. They knew to be lies. And they were involved in facilitating in different ways the torture and extraordinary rendition program all around the world where people had been flown around to be tortured. And, it, and I don't quite understand. I still don't quite understand because it felt to me that what I was doing in, okay, throwing away my career, but, but in standing against it and then resigning, that was what any ordinary person would do. I, I didn't feel like I was special. I felt this is what any decent person should do. But evidently, I was wrong in that, in, in a sense. But all these other decent people, hundreds of them, who, who were involved in these lies and these crimes, and I don't, I mean, I think Tony Blair is simply evil, frankly. I, I, I believe he, I, I believe evil exists, and I, I believe he is one of the uh, people who in many ways personifies it. But these, underneath him, these other people who were facilitating what he did are not evil people and were prepared to be controlled by someone they knew to be a liar. And they knew that this was starting a war that was going to kill, at the minimum, was going to kill tens of thousands of people. And in fact, probably in total was responsible for the deaths of, of millions. Um, you know, these are not small decisions. You, to go to war on the basis of lies is probably as, as bad a thing as anyone can do. You, you know, I, I can't think of any morally worse thing to do than that. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's very sad. And, and it let's, knocked let's, my own view me. of humankind. Let, Craig, let me put it let's that way. expand a little bit beyond that, if you would, please. Yeah. Um, these people who, on a social level, on a personal level, on a friendship level that you went to school with or served years with in the Foreign Service, I could understand how if you're not at the end stage of the consequences of what they are supporting, you can't always appreciate how seemingly good people can do such wretched things, but it's known historically as the good German phenomena, the people who did not directly kill people or didn't work concentration camps, but knew about it, facilitated it at some level, still have a moral responsibility for it. And in 1947, the Nuremberg uh, trials were held, and they made it absolutely clear to the world that you have no obligation to follow any rule or law or, or uh, directive if it is going to harm other people and shouldn't, and it would be, then be considered a, a crime against humanity. So for those people who are educated enough to know history, and certainly the German, um, the English people know history because they were the victims of that uh, war and that atrocity, uh, I wouldn't give them much, I wouldn't give them a lot of leeway on saying, you know, I'm still a good person, even though my facilitating and enabling Tony Blair and causing the death of possibly millions of people and displacement of tens of millions of people and completely disrupting uh, the lives of all those people, including depleted uranium, uh, I'm not really responsible. I think that we should rethink whether or not they are responsible. I'm not the one to judge that. It's you. It's your because you're the person who was the victim. And doesn't tell you something else where everyone else says, hey, something really wrong, and it's good you're fighting it, and we support you, Craig. Go for it. And then you look around, and you can't see them anymore. It's you going to jail. It's you losing your career. 
It's you having newspapers that are not doing any good homework and are dishonest and are fully aware of what they're doing, no different than the New York Times and the Washington Post, what they did to join Assange. So I would say in the real world, they weren't really your friends, and they're cowards. But that's my own biased opinion. Yeah, no, I I think that's true. Um, it's, uh, you know, offend to someone who... who supports you and uh, and is with you in your your time of need and and, and they weren't I'm um, I'm uh, by both by nature and by belief I'm a, a forgiving person I I think um, almost every single human being has has a core of decency and empathy uh, inside them and I mean certainly a lot of these people now, <laughs> now it's too late to be any use. Uh, do regret, and quite a lot of them now now speak out. But uh, it's you know it's quite a scary insight into human nature that people are so so easily misled into evil. I should also say that um, uh, one of the wonderful things in in my life is having okay. I lost my career, and bluntly, I I lost a lot of wealth and money, um, but I made wonderful friends. You know, I've been very privileged. I've become uh, a very good friend with um, Julian Assange. I was very privileged to to become friends with uh, the late Daniel Ellsberg, who sadly left us. And, and all these people, you know, some of the kind of people you were mentioning, like uh, 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 Ray McGovern, uh, Chris Hedges, all, all, all these really good Good people, and um, when I at the time I was blowing the whistle, I, I just tell you this as a slightly lighter note. Um, at the time I was blowing the whistle, when I I became temporarily very famous, it, you know, it was front page news all over the world really because I was the first person to expose the torture and extraordinary rendition program. Um, I had uh, a phone call from Noam Chomsky, and I was uh, I was. You know, absolutely thrilled and delighted because he'd been a hero of mine my entire life. Um, and I, I was speaking with him on the telephone and my, uh, my then 12-year-old daughter answered a ring at the door and she came to me and while I was speaking to Noam Chomsky, she said, Craig, Dad, Dad, Dad she said, there's, there's someone called Harold Pinter at the door, <laughs> which was... <laughs> so I'd kind of projected into a whole new realm, and and, and, and he he also became a, a friend of mine yeah. before he sadly passed. So well, I've... that's an unusual combination. <laughs> it is indeed. Now that that, uh, that that was just one of those unbelievable moments. But remember how unique Harold Pinter is, and remember what Harold Pinter contributed to the intellectual understanding of the human condition without bl flinching and being honest. And he was attacked also, even as, as he was rewarded by the larger and certainly liberal po population for his unique contributions. Now to an important point, and I want to get very specific on that. What can you tell us about Tony Blair that takes a door that opens to his true character, his true machinations, and what he did in order to facilitate making it a more destabilized society, causing untold suffering around the world, and yet at the same time profiting from it. Hmm. Let me just give you just one small example um, of, of Tony Blair's character. Um, in... Kazakhstan, uh, which of course neighbours Uzbekistan and, and where I've been, I, I, I know it slightly. In Kazakhstan, and I'm talking about approximately 10, 12 years ago, I couldn't give you the precise date, I don't remember the precise date. There was a, uh, and Kazakhstan's another dictatorship, another one of these Central Asian dictatorships. Um, there was a strike of coal miners. Coal miners went on strike for better working conditions, higher wages. Um, and the, the coal miners were um, demonstrating, picketing outside their coal mine. Uh, and the government just sent, sent in the army and shot them dead, killed about 25 people, just, just shot them um, in order to end the strike. 
And there was a little bit of publicity about this in the West, but like you know, half a half a paragraph in the uh, in, in in the Washington Post somewhere. Um, and Tony Blair wrote as a as a follow up, having seen that this had happened. Tony Blair wrote a letter to the president of Kazakhstan, offering to advise him on on public relations and give him PR advice on how to handle the fallout from this massacre and any other massacres they may happen to carry out. And he said he'd be happy to do this for, I can't remember, you, you can find the letter was leaked. It's actually available online. They, he was willing to do this for 10 million pounds a year or whatever, uh, be his PR consultant. And I mean, that's, that's a much smaller item than deliberately lying to start the war in Iraq, um, in order to gain Iraqi oil and gas, in effect. Uh, you know, I'm talking about an event that killed a couple of dozen people compared to an event that led to the deaths of millions. But how evil do you have to be to get in touch with a dictator who's just massacred striking miners and say to them, oh, don't worry, I'll help you with the, with the press fallout. You know, that, that's, uh, that man is deeply, deeply evil. I agree. He, and yet, if he came to the United States today, he would be allowed to have a full session before Congress. Now, when you look at him, do you see any similarity in his actions and impact on the world and someone like Zelensky? And where, first of all, Zelensky's Panama Papers, you, you know about the Panama Papers. I do, yeah. Um, you realize that he is one of the people in there showing over a billion dollars in assets before he became president. How did that happen? And now he just bought a $5 million villa in Egypt. How does that happen? And at the same time, we had the bag man. And this is something that was not in the British publications, not even in the Guardian. And I don't read the Guardian anymore because I have no respect for it. It's like the New York Times. And, uh, but it showed the bag man for the president of uh, preceding Zelensky, uh, Poroshenko, that he said that every single vote in uh, Ukraine from every member of parliament cost $50,000 in cash. He also said that every corporation in the country had to be given uh, giving money to the president in order to stay in business. And he went through the – described it, and he was the one. He was the one who met with the president every day, met with the legislators, met with the media. He's the one who even told how much it cost to get the Biden, uh, Biden prosecutor, uh, Shokin, fired. And yet not one single member of the American media picked up on this and played that story. I mean, you have someone who was there firsthand, not hearsay, and who's saying, I've got – the evidence here. Let me come to the United States, and I'll testify before Congress. I have notes. I have black books. I have everyone who got bribes, and how every dollar that America sends over never gets to help the average Ukrainian. It goes into the pockets. It's all corrupt, and uh, and they wouldn't allow him. The State Department, there's your Foreign Service, wouldn't allow him a visa to come and testify under uh, oath before a committee. That would have just blown the whole thing open about um, about um, Hunter Biden and his father. Now, what do you know about? And would you compare in, on any level Zelensky with Tony Blair? I mean, Ukraine is one of the world's most corrupt countries. Always has been, um, and you know, Zelensky was. And is really, he's the, the puppet of oligarchs rather than the key oligarch himself. And having having a billion of illegally gained money uh, puts you in the small league among Ukrainian oligarchs who, who can't bear them, their billions in tens. The, uh, but he's, uh, you know, he, he's not actually in in control of much i think zelensky he he's deeply corrupt he's uh but he's a he's something of a puppet in the in in, in the game he's less of a international player than than blair was in the sense I, i'd put him at the same kind of moral level in in uh many ways 
And I think um, it, I mean, you touch on a very, very important point, which is that people uh, are not being told the truth about the, the, the war in Ukraine at all. Uh, I mean, one, one thing that fascinates me is the BBC actually did several very good reports over the last, and up until two years ago, uh, over the previous four or five years, the BBC did a number of very good reports on, on Nazis in Ukraine, the influence of Nazis in Ukraine, the cult of Bandera, the influence of Nazis in the Ukrainian armed forces. And not only they stopped reporting on that kind of thing, all those old reports uh, they took down. Um, you, of course, on the internet, it's very, very, once something's on the internet, you can almost never permanently erase it, and, and you can find copies of those reports around. But it, it's this, you know, scary, um, not just lying to us now, but, but wiping out inconvenient truth that they told once before is, is, is really quite strange. Um, and I find the, the unanimity of the media uh, is a huge threat to us. You, you know, you, you, you're given such a limited space for public debate uh, because not not only have you got the mainstream media, the legacy media, which is which is concentrated in the hands of five or six billionaires, um, a kind of cartel club of of of, of thought, um, but you've also got the corporate gatekeepers uh, at um, Facebook and Twitter in particular um, who are controlling gatekeeping access to social media to, to stop progressives from getting a wider audience. Um, so we, we live in extremely dangerous times. I was reading, there was an article in the Guardian newspaper, which I think summed much of it up a couple of days ago by Sydney. Blumenthal, in which he simply asserted as fact, uh, with no discussion, that you know there is no evidence of there is no no evidence at all of any wrongdoing by Joe Biden in in terms of uh, his son's business activities, and you wonder how again this goes back to people who are you know apparently decent people. Uh, just telling lies that they they must know are are lies because there's a huge amount of evidence of of uh, of Biden's uh, complicity and and of the you know the family business of influence selling and Hunter being the bagman. Um, Craig, it, let me let's spin off from that into something that I think that you would give us some deep insight into, and that is you grew up um, with a more liberal background. I certainly did. What the heck has happened to the once noble and formidable uh, liberals who cared about no war, truth, helping the working class, the middle class, a freedom of speech, and having a very skeptical disposition, rightly so, against the CIA, the FBI, and now the head of the FBI, the head of the CIA, the head, the head of a, uh, the head of the national security agencies. A, they lie and caught lying before Congress. They plant misinformation, and then they're hired at CNN and MSNBC and other places. And now they're protected and defended, where freedom of speech, true speech, is now censored. And in your country, in particular with your 15-minute cities and your massive in, intelligence states and spying on people, and now your freedom of speech is substantially curtailed because of special interest groups saying that if you don't give them the right pronoun, that could be considered you know, hate speech and people can be actually fined or arrested. What the hell is happening to the voices of true liberalism? What is happening to Great Britain based upon what the government is now trying to do to control your lives. Well, that's, a, that's an awful lot to unpack. But, and there, there are two major points there, which is, you know, how did, the, how did people who believe themselves to be liberals become the massive war hawks 
and how did they convince themselves that the way to make the world a better place is by continually bombing, killing and maiming a lot of people, including women and children, because anybody who believes wars can be fought cleanly without hurting the innocent is, is, is deceiving themselves very, very badly. Um, it's, it's extraordinary. And the, and the other point is, you know, how has society lost almost all respect, particularly among younger people, for the value of the speech? And they're uh, replacing it by ideas like, I have the right never to hear something that may offend me, um, which of course, if you accept that notion, removes free speech entirely. These are, these, these, one, one, as a historian, one thing that interests me is if, if you read through the history of the British Empire, um, at its most acquisitive, let's say when it was conquering and raping India, which at the time was massively wealthy and but before it was looted by, and, and destroyed by the British, um, they never once ever, ever said to themselves or as their public newspaper commentary, they never said, uh, we are invading this state. And remember, uh, before the British conquered it, India was about 38 separate states that they conquered one by one. Um, they never, as they conquered each one, they never once said, we are, we are conquering this state to steal its resources and to loot it. They were always conquering that state for the good of its inhabitants, because it had bad leaders, because it need, they didn't use the phrase regime change, but they, they had precisely that same attitude. Um, and this notion that you, know, you, you precede your imperial advance and resource grab, and you, you justify it by uh, believing you're doing it for the good of the people you are conquering. Uh, you know, we all hoped that that that's what imperialism is. Uh, and we all hoped that that uh, imperialism had, had gone away, you know, it, that it had been fatally wounded by the First World War and died in the Second World War and, and had gone. But the but liberals have bought the imperialist narrative. And, and they, they talk of, nowadays, they talk of liberal intervention. It's exactly the same as imperialism. You know, we are bombing, blasting Libya to pieces in order to prevent a civil war. Well, <laughs> how, does, how does that help if you're just going to destroy the cities and kill all the people yourself and un un unleash massive destruction and civil war on the country? Um, but it amazes me that liberals have been seduced into the liberal intervention model which actually simply is how imperialism always worked. It was always justified as for the good of population. But that, that's, um, and, and I will say, um, I'm not, please don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump as an individual. Um, but I believe had Hillary Clinton been elected, we, Syria would also have been completely destroyed. They were get, she said as much, really, but they were gearing up to do to Syria what they did to Libya, and that could have led potentially to nuclear destruction and direct conf through direct conflict between American and Russian forces. Um, so uh, I find that the terms, these issues have almost become more important uh, or, or more urgent um, than some of the more traditional issues on the left. And the identity politics has been used to eradicate class politics. Instead of the real divide in society being faced, which is the fact that wealth in, here in the United States, you know, I'm here in this massively wealthy country, and I'm passing lines of people sleeping on the street. Um, the wealth has become massively concentrated in the hands of a few, and, and dire poverty is the lot of, of many, many people. And instead of um, instead of worrying about a fundamental redistribution of wealth, a fundamental redistribution of economic power, a fu fundamental uh, increase in, in the rights of workers. Um, uh, instead, the left is distracted on whether uh, men who want to be women should be allowed to use which toilet. Uh, you know, I, I mean, that's an interesting debate, but how on earth is that important <laughs> compared 
to the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people who, who can't afford good health care, many of whom are homeless, who can't even afford to eat properly in this very wealthy country. <laughs> that plainly is a far more urgent and important problem that, that progressives should be addressing. And, and they're not. They're, they're distracted by by these uh, ludicrous identity politics issues, which are then themselves used to attack free speech, as you so rightly say. Craig, I fully agree with you on that. We are a nation now balkanized intentionally to keep distracted. Uh, my last point of interest is um, you have been a major voice, along with Randy Credico and, and Roger Walters and Waters and others, to tell the world, Julian Assange is not uh, a criminal. He shouldn't be punished. He's, and he is being uh, by Great Britain and the United States. But even re recently, the Australian Parliament wanted to see him returned uh, to Australia because uh, he is an Australian citizen. Could you give us your take on that? And also the fact that what he did is exactly what the New York Times, the Washington Post, and all every single media does. They use sources, including confidential sources in every governmental agency uh, that leaks information to them, and nothing is ever done about that. So I can't find where he's actually committed a crime unless you want to make exposing the crimes of, um, of each administration, including and especially uh, what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq under Blackwater. So the man who the man who shows us the criminal and its act now becomes the criminal and this makes no sense unless you're living in a Norwegian world. Your thoughts please. I I quite agree. It's um appalling and remember Julian's being held in terrible conditions in maximum security, a maximum security jail in exactly the same facility which houses the worst convicted terrorists and mass murderers in the in the UK. And the man's just a journalist. He's never harmed anybody in his life. And he's of no danger to anybody. Why on earth is he is he being slowly tortured to death in effect by deprivation in this uh, maximum security facility. It, it, it's, it beggars belief that they're doing this. And all he did was, was publish the truth. And nobody has ever claimed that what WikiLeaks published, the, um, uh, the diplomatic cables, the Afghan and Iraq war logs, the collateral murder video, and, and all, the, all the wrongdoing that they show, nobody has, has ever argued it wasn't all true. Uh, it, it was all true. And of course, not only was he merely doing exactly, as, as you quite rightly say, exactly what all these so-called respectable newspapers do. Um, he's only being charged. The charges, it's important to say, because people get confused, the charges have nothing to do with Sweden. They have nothing to do with the 2016 election. The, the charges only relate to the Chelsea Manning revelations on, on war crimes. That, that's what the charges are. Um, and exactly the same material which Julian is being uh, crucified for publishing was actually published by the New York Post, but by, by the New York Times and the and, and the Washington Post and the Guardian. Um, so why are they not? You know, they committed the exact same crime at the same time. So why are they not being judged? Uh, they, um, this is an extraordinary thing. We're, we're seeing this. Julian is a great intellectual. He, he really is. And we're seeing the slow death by judicial process of a great man um, for telling the truth. It, it, it's, and the total lack of respect for the First Amendment, which that involves, is also extraordinary. The prosecution, of course, are, are arguing that Julian's not entitled to First Amendment protections because he's not a, a U.S. citizen. Um, again, that's quite an, an extraordinary thing to say, um, particularly when he wasn't in the United States. He didn't publish in the United States, he, he, and he's not a U.S. citizen, so he has no loyalty to the United States. Why should he? He's an Australian citizen. So to claim at the same time that you have universal jurisdiction and can reach out and, and pluck this man 
from another country and bring him here because he's subject to your laws, even though he's not your citizen and, and wasn't here when the so-called the so-called crime was committed, um, and say he's subject to your laws, but he has none of the rights conveyed by your laws. That makes you know that that's just breathtaking, absolutely astonishing as a claim. And what what is the United States going to do when China decides uh, it's going to take? An, an American journalist from somewhere around the world and, and have him brought back to China to face charges for publishing um, uh, something the Chinese government doesn't like. It's the, the, lack of, the lack of awareness of the consequences of these kind of actions um, astonishes me. One last final footnote to this discussion, talking about unintended consequences when Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State under Barack Obama, and their cabinet decided to bomb Libya, though Libya was not a threat to anyone except to propose the gold denier and to join the African Union in starting to trade in their own currency to keep that money and resources in their own current country. Um, and uh, now today, there's about anywhere from 11 to 21,000 people who are drowned, have drowned or are missing, presumed drowned, and part of that is because of no maintenance since Gaddafi was killed of the uh, reservoirs that they had, which breached because of the heavy storms and flooded. And it's all over the world in all the newspapers. Well, that wouldn't have happened had Gaddafi stayed in this country. So along with all the thousands who were murdered, innocent civilians by NATO under command of Barack Obama, now you look at the consequences, open-air slave trading, a country destroyed. It was the Paris of Africa, and yet no one in the media says, hey, didn't you cause this? Isn't this because of your actions? So I'm going to leave it at that. I want to thank you very much for the work you're doing. And one final thought. How many of those good friends of yours came to see you when you were in prison? Um, well, no one could. I, I, I was kept in uh, solitary confinement for, and wasn't the person that you went after? Wasn't that person recently uh, charges brought against them? Um, yes, the uh, basically, I um, what I did was I wrote, and I believe it to be true, that the then first minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, orchestrated a conspiracy of false accusations um, against her predecessor as first minister. She organised a number of people very close to her to make false accusations against him. Um, and fortunately, he was found not guilty on trial. Um, but freedom of speech was restricted, and effectively you were banned from saying anything that could indicate that she was involved or, or who these people were, that they were all close associates of hers. And I, I published that they were close associates of hers. And for that reason, I was, um, I, I was jailed. And I, I was kept in a cell, uh, a small cell on my own for 23 or 23 and a half hours a day, um, which is, uh, you know, not... For not, how many years? Not very pleasant. Two four, years? No, no, no. I, I, I was only there for four months. I, I'm not four sure months? I would have survived two years. Um, Solitary confinement for four months hmm. is still a long time, and now some of those people are now being held accountable. Yeah, by, um, uh, by chance, they... I'm, the person who you know I accused of, I, and I, I absolutely believe correctly, and I have I have plenty of evidence. I have written evidence that I'm not permitted to publish, or I will go back to prison again. Um, I, you know, the person who orchestrated this um, was has now been arrested uh, by the police, and is under investigation with her hopefully husband. They, hopefully, for, some karma comes their way, Craig. Yeah, they're, they're just for embezzlement. They were stealing money from yeah. the government and the party. It's, it's, Craig Murray, it's, thank you very much for being with us. Craig's website is craigmurray.org.uk. All the best to you. Thank you. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all for listening to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Have a nice day.
You know we've got to find a 